You're listening to R&D in the QC with Tariq Bakari and Market Eggleston. Tonight we talk about the zoning meeting. We have special guest Spencer Merriweather, and then we have Sam Spencer from the Planning Commission. Episode three, Larkin, are you excited? We haven't been canceled yet. I mean, I think the traction of this podcast is renowned. I mean, we were on the Charlotte podcast as special guests this week. Which actually got published online while we were in our meeting tonight. So check that out after you're done listening to this episode, this week's episode of the Charlotte podcast. Seeing some other pod bros. If you will. Another, That's what they called us. I wasn't sure if that yeah, was a compliment or not. I, but they, I think they were thinking of themselves, too. So that was great. So, look, what it's what is it, 10.36 in the p.m. And that's only because we cut the meeting short. We cut the meeting short and didn't even finish it. Seven items on our zoning agenda tonight got bumped to next week. So next week's episode might be recorded uh, at, like, 2 in the morning. Yes. Because there was a prediction that next week's meeting could go to midnight or 1 a.m., which would make recording the show after it very fun. But, yeah, so we had a very busy zoning agenda tonight. I actually didn't think there were going to be many that we got hung up on. There were. There were three in particular. So I think those are the three we unpacked tonight uh, for our quick rapid fire before we get into our guests of the podcast interviews later. Guests of the pod. So um, let's start with uh, one of mine that I've actually been running down for a while now. It's uh, it's the Nolly Court District 6 project. Um, there's so many angles to this that I'm still learning. I, I, you know, again, for our, for our listeners, we've said it before, but there's, there's hearings of which it's kind of like the community's time to speak, staff's time and, and petitioner's time to give us updates. And then a month from them, typically, then is our time to vote. So we're in a hearing phase for that right now. We've been working for weeks with the community. This one's really unique because... Um, it's an affordable housing uh, yeah. project, first And to of give all. people a sense, I will say, this is something I wouldn't have guessed was in your district. People think of your district, they think of South Park and, and the surrounding areas. This is over on Monroe Road in Sardis. Right next uh, to City Barbecue, literally across the street from Matthews. Yeah, which is very much East Charlotte, and, and I would have presumed District 5. So this is a, a part of your district I didn't even realize was part of your district. Um, but yeah, to your point, this is an affordable housing project done by the Charlotte Housing Partnership. Uh, that's age restricted, so it'd be primarily for older residents. Fifty-five and older, primarily, and and again, I think every, uh, the community and the uh, the petitioner, everyone's kind of in agreement that affordable housing is important, and they don't want that to be the reason uh, construed for their uh, concerns. But their concerns are, you know, valid from their own perspective, which is this is higher than I, I normally would expect it. It's four stories when everything else is three at its highest. It's more dense as it relates to 32 units per square foot or uh, per acre versus 17 and 25 in the surrounding kind of adjacent areas. Um, traffic concerns, other developments coming in, tree safe concerns. So the one thing I love about it is both sides are really actively working and dialoguing and trying to find middle ground. They've been doing so even though they're passionate about it. But, you know, we're going to have a decision on our hands. Did anything jump out at you from what you heard tonight? Well, one of the things on this one, and, and actually another we'll talk about, and a lot of these, part of the reason that we go through this process is because we see concessions being made over the course of that process. So in this case, the petitioner, Charlotte Housing Partnership, uh, reduced the number of units, increased the tree save. Um, what else? There was a couple of things that they did that were to try to address some of the they concerns. They reduced the height reduced from the height. four to three stories yep. on the two ends near the houses. So there again, it's the, the community voices the concerns. The developer kind of goes back to the drawing board and says, 
where can we find some middle ground? And I think that's the the upshot from this process that's positive. Again, there's some other that we saw tonight, and there's always going to be others where we see um, the meeting meeting of the minds leading to kind of a meeting in the middle. And I think that's what we're looking for is to see that the petitioner, the developer, is engaging the community, is being not only listening to the concerns of the neighbors, but um, trying to work those into their project as best possible. So, I mean, for me, I think uh, Braxton said it said it best in my mind. The need for affordable housing in Charlotte is so profound that there are going to have to be concessions made by all parts of our city to say this might not be this might be a little taller than I want it to be, or it might. Um, Whatever it might, it might be a few more units than I want it to be, or it might cause a little bit of traffic uh, that I'd prefer not to have. But the, the reality is, we can't tackle an over thirty thousand unit deficit for affordable housing without a little bit of discomfort. And so Braxton brought that up. Uh, I think a lot of us kind of tend to agree with that point. Um, this this was an interesting one, but I am glad to see that that concessions are being made and some middle grounds being found. So, so one final point on this. It, the, this is a two-part equation when normally zoning decisions that are not affordable housing related are, are really one part we're involved in. So putting the zoning aside, and we have another month to finish negotiating and, and getting the best uh, scenario between those two parties as we can, it will come to us at some point in the future because this is a taxpayer-funded affordable housing deal, um, the, the, the economic development investment portion of this coming out of the trust and um, I'm, I'm, I'm being very cautious not to like let that weigh into my decisioning and the process for zoning. But uh, one of the things I've challenged these parties to help me understand later for that ask is, you know, I'm trying with a group of people in town to really change the dynamic of the conservative viewpoint and say, let's, let's start getting behind topics that a majority of, of our citizenship here have said is important to them. Upward mobility, equality, af- uh, affordable housing. But how can we do so applying some of our conservative principles to making sure that we're doing this in a sustainable manner? And for me, it's, it's going to be asking questions about, is this a good spend? Is, if, if it's X amount of dollars that we donate in and, and, and tax funds that are ultimately um, uh, you know, diverted and not charged uh, as part of this deal, is that a good deal benchmark to other affordable housing deals? Are our taxpayers getting a good deal for 103 or whatever the number of units are at a 60% AMI? Yeah, and that's definitely something we've got to unpack too. But I, I think that on, just on the surface, a lot of the, the new council members, we ran with you know, our top priority or one of our top priorities for most of us being, for me, I would say it was my top priority, being attacking this affordable housing gap. So, you know, when we have these opportunities to do that, again, we want to be cognizant of the concerns of the neighbors, but we also can't miss opportunities uh, to create affordable housing. So, you know, I think there's there's good cases being made on both sides. Um, again, that's a decision we'll make next month, and, and we'll have more information between now and then, too, that will help guide that decision. So the second one um, that also showed, I think, some concessions being made by the petitioner in terms of addressing concerns of the neighbors, although this was the one that had the biggest uh, cheering section tonight, was the Varnador building, which is also kind of synonymously being referred to as the Irvin building now uh, on Independence Boulevard. So it's one of the, there's only two or three along Independence Boulevard, what you would consider towers as you're heading east um, out towards Matthews. And this is the first one you get to. It's very near the Walmart on Independence Boulevard. Uh, It's about 10 stories. 
office building that's been empty for 10, 15 years and um, kind of an iconic building, but obviously in, in very bad disrepair. And there were probably 40 plus people in the audience tonight. It was impressive. Holding green signs saying they supported this project. There was one person who spoke against it because of some um, lighted sign elements that would be on the rooftop of this project that he worried would have some light pollution concerns. I think staff's going to dig into that light pollution thing. But uh, again, this, the size of that side is, sign was reduced because those concerns were expressed and the petitioner said, all right, well, we'll we'll size it, we'll slice it down a little bit to try to address some of that. So, I mean, it, what was, and maybe we'll find if we, after we do this longer that this is normal, but it strikes me as strange that the petitioner and a large outpouring of the neighbors are supporting this and staff is, is, is against it right now, which is just strange to me. Staff is against it. And one thing that, um, you know, we'll have, we'll have to ask our, our friends on the planning commission about, I get the sense that staff kind of is a little bit more, um, what binary mm-hmm. is the word you've used before binary in the sense that, that there are rules. They're not necessarily open to interpretation so much as they are black and white. Uh, in this case, this is an odd property that, that kind of it's on independence Boulevard, which is basically a freeway now, but it also abuts, um, some resident, single-family residential. So it's a really unique circumstance. It's a taller building than you're going to see right around there. But it's already a tall building. It already exists. And our colleague Ed Driggs pointed out um, this isn't allowing a tall building or a hundred-some-foot building there. It's it's already there. So it, it's a very unique circumstance. Um, a lot of us pushed back on staff on the height thing and, and some of the other concerns. I think where most of us on council tended to agree with some of the concerns was let's make sure we've really fully understood this, the, the light pollution potential um, and the, the potential for unintended consequences on the, maybe setting a precedent for digital billboards and, and things along that corridor. But it's a really exciting project. Anybody who um, has ever talked to me about anything knows I, I get excited about saving old buildings. There's, this is an opportunity to do that. And I think it could be a transformative well, thing for East Charlotte. You know, there's another thing you get excited about from time to time. And that is a, a good beverage. A good beverage. And, you know, I, I'm with you. I'm with you. And many folks may not know this about you, but you don't drink beers necessarily. You're not a big beer guy. I'm not. They've but played. you, but you're a liquor guy and you're a wine guy. You've I taught do. me that Pinot Noir is the great choice because it doesn't stain your teeth. That's true. That kind of makes me sound like a wino. Um, <laughs> I, I was blown away. I mean, but you're a wealth of knowledge, not to make it seem all alcohol related. It's a so, strange tapestry of, of random facts, but this ties into yeah. another interesting conversation well, we had tonight. And it ties into my to my industry. My industry is, is in the alcohol beverage business, and um, I'm on the spirit side of things. That's what I've done professionally for 10 years, and I still do. But um, so tonight it was brought up that, when um, and what year did they say it was that they did the brewery amendment? It wasn't that long ago, though. In the last, we'll say six years or so, they created an amendment in our code that allowed for uh, the development of breweries. And obviously, you can see the the results of that is that we I now mean, we have are renowned, two dozen breweries, renowned or probably on the East Coast level, starting where, to be on on, on our uh, destination for breweries. So whereas OMB, when they opened in like two thousand eight or something, they were yep. the only local brewery, pretty much. Um, we've now got a couple dozen. So you can see the the outcome of that change. Well, what we left out back then, maybe just as an oversight, was that it did not allow for places that produce cider, um, places that produce mead, which is a, a honey wine 
uh, or, or places that just produce grape wine. Uh, and so these are not vineyards. They're not growing grapes there, but they're, um, they're going to produce wine. They're going to produce mead or cider. And for whatever reason, these did not fall into that same category, even though they're similar beverages in terms of alcohol content, in terms of the size of the building that would be needed to produce them. Um, so it was just kind of an oversight. So that got brought up tonight that we want to include those types of businesses. And that's what they are. These are small local businesses. And that's one of the things I get excited about. Um, I might not be a big beer drinker, but I love the fact that a lot of these breweries, again, utilizing old buildings are coming in, starting a small local business. And then when many citizens in Charlotte now buy a beer, that's money staying in Charlotte. Whereas 10 years ago, it was inevitably going to St. Louis or Milwaukee or Denver or somewhere or Colorado or somewhere else. Were you else. surprised how long we talked about this tonight? We did. So it, it, it steered off into a discussion about the, uh, the noise, the noise issues that like bars and, and breweries and nightclubs or whatever have in the adjacent neighborhoods. You know, I contended that wineries and cider places are not where people usually go to get like wild and crazy. It's, it's a little bit more chill vibe. Um, it's not generally the people that are going to over serve themselves. So, you know, I didn't know if that was a relevant line of conversation for that topic. And, um, and it was mentioned by a couple of us that it's, that's not really so much the issue as why should they be treated differently than the yeah. breweries? And that's what's currently happening. So again, that came to us as a rezoning, but it's obviously a, a whole different discussion because it's more of a, a text amendment to our code to allow for, um, certain types of development that take place in certain parts of town. So basically where you see these breweries, you'd start to see places producing other types of, um, of alcoholic beverages. Before I, we get to our two special guests, just a final recap question for you. How was the meatloaf? The meatloaf was okay. So that this is a, a, an odd reference. You're going to now, you have to go listen to the Charlotte podcast episode now because Targ and I dig deep into... Uh, we did our best to make those guys famous, too. Yeah, I think we're well, really going to do it. So we d- we dug into the menu for tonight, and I said that they always give us our, our food menus for the, the dinner briefings a couple of days in advance. I don't, I don't know why they do that, but... Um, and it said meatloaf and mashed potatoes, and so I thought in a, a little zoning... A heavy for a, a zoning, a zoning meeting. Meeting I'm exhausted right now. I think it's to, because of the meatloaf. Tends to be the meeting where your eyes get a little heavier and you need an extra cup of coffee, so... Meatloaf and mashed potatoes was <laughs> was tasty, but it was an odd choice for like meatloaf, the meatloaf. the more sleep inducing meeting we have for the month. I'm gonna, I'm gonna say let's make that let's make meatloaf next time for the short business meeting. Let's have like a something light keeps you light on your feet and energized for the zoning meeting. Let's but get to it some, was okay. some some okay. I could do without cabbage, you know. Ca- yeah, truth, truth. Yeah. Tonight's wasn't tonight's wasn't a home run. So let's get to some Spencers. All right, so yeah, coming up after the break, we've got. Mecklenburg County's new district attorney, Spencer Merriweather. And then after that, what do we got? Another Spencer. Well, a, a, Spencer, a Mr. Spencer. Mr. Sam Spencer Mr. from the Sam Planning Spencer. Commissioner. So we've got lots of friends of the podcast on tonight. We'll be right back. This is John. And this is Miller from the Charlotte Podcast. And you're listening to R&D in the QC. As far as podcasts about transparency and government in the city of Charlotte, put on by two sitting city council members. This is our favorite all right, welcome back to the podcast. Tark, we've got another great friend of the podcast with us this week, our new district attorney, Mr. Spencer Merriweather. So Spencer, for those of you who don't know, in November was sworn in as the new Mecklenburg County district attorney uh, when our former district attorney, Andrew Murray, became a U.S. attorney. So 
Uh, both Andrew Murray, his predecessor, and Governor Cooper decided that Spencer was the man for the job. He was sworn in in November, and he has graced us with his presence on the podcast this week. So welcome to you, Spencer. You'll be running for re-election in 2018, but you're already doing the job now. How's it going so far? It's going well. I've been staying busy. I love the opportunity to meet a number of people and engage with the community at a different level than a trial prosecutor would, uh, but it has been uh, full speed ahead, and I'm enjoying doing the job. Well, welcome to the podcast, my friend. I know this is a huge honor for you. Um, <laughs> Indeed it is. How excited are you? I'm ex- super Sc- excited. Scale super of 1 excited. to 10, would you say like 20? I'm thinking 20,000. So, so, <laughs> so let's get serious, though, because I know one of the topics you've talked a bit about, uh, and, and I know it's a key focus here for you, Larkin and I and the rest of our colleagues are also focusing on it, uh, especially after Thursday uh, night's um, really tragic uh homicide, officer-involved shooting. Uh, the officer was also shot in the leg, but uh, luckily is, um, is recovering well. But we've got a real tragedy as it relates to um, what we're, we're slowly learning is related to domestic violence. And um, I know that's a big topic. What are you doing and seeing as it relates to that uh, on a more of a macro level? And I know that as tragic as Thursday was and as tragic as um, all of our domestic violence incidents are, uh, certainly didn't start on Thursday. Um, I've spent uh, 11 years of my life as a uh, prosecutor de- uh, dedicated to uh, fighting family violence, and I'll continue to do so. What I can tell you specifically that our community is rallying around is the notion of a family justice center. Uh, and the idea is that if we can create a place uh, where families can receive multiple services and coordinate with law enforcement uh, and a number of people to help them uh, meet their needs, uh, that would go a long way towards empowering victims so that we don't have situations like we've had over the course of the past week. Um, our, the survivors of uh, family violence, when I say family violence, I mean domestic violence, child abuse, sexual assault. Uh, they are in need of services that empower them. Uh, and it's when you empower a victim, empower a survivor, that she's able to engage and her children are able to engage in the criminal justice system in a way that we're able to hold people accountable. Absolutely. So, Spencer, one of the things, if anyone listening, if this is something that is either personally relevant to them or just something that they're passionate about as you seek to open this family justice center who would you suggest any any of the listeners any of uh, any of our constituents that are listening and want to get involved in this and advocate for the creation of this where's the funding come from for this who could they email of their elected officials and say this is important to me i think this should be a priority for our community and, and please uh, find the funds to help this come to fruition. Every last one of them, uh, quite honestly. Every single elected official you know, there is no reason uh, why you shouldn't be engaging with uh, those officials. Because the truth is, uh, from the sheriff, uh, from our uh, Charlotte Mecklenburg Police Department chief, they're already on board with this idea. Uh, we've been coordinating with our uh, six town chiefs in Mecklenburg County who are already on with this idea. Uh, we're engaging with the Mecklenburg County uh, Board of Commissioners. We're engaging with the uh, Charlotte City Council. Everybody needs to be on board. Where we've done this successfully, uh, where this concept has been uh, erected successfully, um, it, everyone's been on board. Everyone's been engaged. They have one of these in Asheville. They have one of these in Greensboro. There's no reason why we don't. We shouldn't have one in Mecklenburg County. So we, we you know, the... I think everyone is realizing more and more each day just what a critical topic this is. We try not to just kind of, you know, stay on one side of the issue here on this podcast. We try to kind of see both sides and different things of that nature. You were at uh, an event I was at last week, which I thought was fantastic. It was a homicide task force meeting. That's right. Of the community. A lot of 
I, I had no idea how many, let alone leaders, but how many different organizations there are. And you know, while I think all the conversations were incredibly um, uh, relevant, they were incredibly um, right on, spot on as it related to, I, I didn't hear anything I really totally disagreed with. One of my critiques in leaving was everyone seems to be focused in this topic they jump right to the long term, the macro, in, the, in that it's upward mobility and it's affordable housing and it's all of these major items related to homicide. And while I don't disagree that that is the long term solution uh, to, to things like this, I didn't hear very much conversation on the short term in this nature. And the short term we can't ignore because really lives are being lost. And while you may say we're addressing a symptom, not the root cause in this case, when we talk about putting money, resources, and time behind um, domestic violence support, behind a dispute resolution, uh, I, I don't view that necessarily as distracting us from the longer term solution. I view it as a must have, and I don't know that it got enough airtime in that meeting. How do, how do you feel about that? Tark, I think the short term solution is what you and I did uh, last Wednesday, which is show up. Uh, when elected officials, when public officials actually show up and engage with members of the community, it lights a fire under them. I can't follow everybody home and figure out what goes on in their house. Um, and quite honestly, the police can't stop domestic violence at every single instance. But what we can do is remind people exactly what the issues are which cause us in the first place. And when they go back into their homes, when they go back in the community, they can have a much greater effect than we can. We need to be empowering people in the community, which is what I think that we did when we show up and engage with them. Uh, if we continue to do that, we will go a long way towards doing the kind of interventions, interventions that are meaningful. Yeah, definitely. All right. Well, we appreciate you joining us on the podcast. Look forward to continuing to work with you. Look forward to supporting the Family Justice Center. And uh, thanks for all the great work you're doing. And we hope you'll join us again soon. Absolutely. Thanks, guys. We'll be right back with our final segment. Thank you. Welcome back to the show, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, well, you know, as we've been discussing, we just wrapped up a pretty long evening of zoning, riveting zoning conversations, which were actually pretty interesting. Um, but one of the key components, Larkin, is um, what's going on with uh, other bodies uh, that are across the city, both in staff, both appointed individuals who help us come to these conclusions. And we got a, a great guest here with us. Absolutely. So there are two groups that kind of advise the the vote that we ultimately take as city council, and um, and, and there actually was no sarcasm in, in Tark's riveting comment because we did have a couple of kind of hot button rezonings come up tonight, so there will be some interesting stuff uh, to talk about in that regard. But we do want to welcome another friend of the podcast, Sam Spencer, to the program. He is on the Charlotte Mecklenburg Planning Commission and is the vice chair of their zoning committee, who sits with us during these zoning meetings. Um, and, and gives advice. So welcome to the to podcast. Meat, meatloaf with you. And gets to share meatloaf with us. So welcome to the podcast. Friend and of the pod. Sam is going to give us a little primer, a little Schoolhouse Rock style uh, introduction to how this process takes place before it gets to us. Uh, Tark and I have talked a little bit about what we do with it in our last zoning meeting podcast, but tell us what happens before these come to our meeting. Absolutely. So Charlotte is one of the fastest growing places in the entire country. And so we see a lot of rezoning petitions. In uh, 2017, we saw um, over 170 filed, and not all of those have even come to city council yet. So when some, essentially what we're doing with these rezonings, which is a fourth of what the city council does, 
um, is we are discussing land use issues. That's what it comes down to, is that we are determining whether or not something is an appropriate land use. So uh, a developer or somebody who owns the property files a rezoning petition. Uh, that's one kind of rezoning that we'll get. And they want to change the use, for example, um, if you're in Southend, a lot of parcels are zoned for industrial uses, for manufacturing, um, you know, for production. Obviously, the way Southend has been going, uh, with it being transit-oriented, with it being connected to the light rail, and with there being a lot of demand uh, for people to live in Southend, you see a lot of rezonings for mixed use, for, for businesses, for residential, and so, so that's the entire price process here. When somebody is rezoning a parcel, they're basically changing the land use for that parcel. Uh, so they do the application, um, they work with staff, they have a public hearing um, or a neighborhood meeting. So staff, I'll jump in, staff to clarify, um, we're talking about the planning staff of the city of Charlotte, right? Yeah, planning department staff. Um, you're, if you're ever in the government center, you'll find them on floors seven and eight. And so the planning department staff um, works with the petitioner. And so they go back and forth, they find different issues, they make sure that the, uh, the person who's doing a rezoning has met all the requirements. And there's a lot that has to happen before it gets to what we had tonight, which is a public hearing on the rezoning petitions uh, in front of the city council. So typically what happens after that is if everything's in order, and that's not always the case, uh, but if everything's in order, it comes to a public hearing in front of the city council. Um, city council, the staff makes a presentation, the petitioner often makes a presentation, people who are opposed to the rezoning often make presentations, uh, city council gets asked questions, and then the public hearing gets closed. Um, what happens after that is a couple weeks later, um, the rezoning comes before the zoning committee of the planning commission. And so there are 14 people total on the planning commission, I'm one of them. There are seven of us on the zoning committee. And on the zoning committee, we, using the uh, policy developed by the city council, uh, using recommendations made by staff, which are, are usually pretty clear, um, we decide up or down whether or not uh, we recommend the rezoning. And then it goes back to the city council. Um, so most rezonings, um, if they get to that point in the process where they've had a public hearing and they've gone through the staff pro process and staff recommends approval, most of them get past, you know, seven zero six to one. Sam's usually the one for the record. He is generally the contrarian viewpoint on the zoning committee. If, if there's ever a 6-1 vote, I presume, usually correctly, that it was Sam. So let me drill into that, that, that kind of angle real quick. So question one is uh, part of... The, the role you guys play, other than being focused on this topic kind of, you know, uh, completely, is you're independent, yeah. right? You, there's this level of independence of staff is going as deep, if not deeper, than you guys, but they're staff, right, from that perspective. You are meant to kind of be a counterbalance of sorts to make sure that you're kind of a little bit separated from that organization but you're still part of the decisioning flow, a, correct? A citizen advisory group. Yeah, yeah. I, I, think, I think number one is that uh, the planning commission and the zoning committee is where citizens get the ability to have input. And if you look at the composition of the planning commission, uh, there are appointees from the city council, there are appointees from the county commission, 
there's appointee from the mayor, appointee from the chair of the Board of County Commission, and then um, there are two uh, that are like me where we are appointed by CMS. Um, and so Charlotte Mecklenburg Schools appoints two. Uh, one gets approved by the city council and the other gets approved by uh, the county commission. So and you're appointed by CMS individually. Yeah. So let, let, let me drill into that point because our, our colleague Councilman Driggs made a good point where every time we see these zonings, we see the recommendations, we see everything from staff, one of the things we always see is Every school in, re in, re in relation to that decision we have to make is typically oversubscribed, percentage over 100%, so overcapacity. Um, how are, in your view, given especially the unique spot you sit in, how are we supposed to make a decision based on something that always seems to be somewhat bad news, but we have no bearing over, and there's really no broader conversations with those entities of how should we be thinking about it? I can't think of the last time any decision was made based on those factors. So, I mean, is it pointless for us to receive that? Or do we need to do more to kind of work cross-body to actually figure out what we're doing? Oh, I, I think we absolutely have to do more to tear down the silos between um, each governmental entity. Because what we know is that these issues are interconnected. You pull one string and you, you, know, you take down the entire tapestry. Um, so one of the things that myself and the other CMS representative is uh, Bolin McClung, and we're both uh, we're both on zoning right now. Right now, um, we we've been talking a lot with CMS um, because, and we've been asking for more information, and we've wanted you know more information to be um, in the zoning book, not just for us, but also for staff and for for city council, because uh, it's no surprise that you know when you see in basically all of us get these huge college textbook size planning books. Uh, city Council does, Zoning Committee does. Yes, um, we are familiar. They're also going to get bigger. I've actually asked staff to add some <laughs> other things into them. That's not a joke. Um, so I prefer it printed on one side of each piece of paper, well, not two like they do now. So we could be even larger. But but the long and short of it is, is you look at that and you, uh, you look at the utilization. Sure, you're going to see schools that have like 140, 150, 160% utilization um, a rezoning's adding a ton of students, but th there's also two things you have to consider there. Number one, um, why are the the schools there overcrowded? Because that's where people are building, um, and the schools were, that are underutilized are the places where where people don't want to develop. Um, the the other thing that's that's really important and really interesting is that uh, a lot of times, and this happened in one of the uh, petitions tonight, um, a petition in um, in Ed Driggs's district along Archery Kell Road. You will get a rezoning that will actually build units, um, and it will create less CMS students, um, yet less utilization of seats yeah, in the schools yeah. than it would by right. Uh, because I, I think one of the biggest things that people get wrong when they go to planning and, and when they go to the zoning meeting is that they assume that the rezoning is... Um, the only thing that could possibly happen, and it's a yes/no. And the reality is, a lot of the time, um, what a developer or a property owner could build under the current zoning um, is often not what we want. Um, and they could build, they could build something bigger. They could build something with uh, more units, um, or because a lot of the times it's an older zoning, uh, they could build it in a way that looks like 1980s suburbia and doesn't look like. Uh, the kind of development that that we envision, and that was actually an issue with one of the one of the more hot um, 
rezonings that we talked about earlier in the show was the fact that some neighbors were arguing we'd rather have it the way it, it is it exists currently than this potential rezoning um, when the real the reality is that the options are the rezoning that's being presented or what is possible under the current zoning, which in this case was office uh, as opposed to residential. So, yeah, that is one of the things that I think a lot of people, uh, they think they're fighting with the two options being current state or proposed state as opposed to, to your point, what's ava- what's allowed by right. So, well, we certainly appreciate you coming on and certainly appreciate you helping get us and, and all of our listeners up to speed on Indeed. what the Planning Commission does. Keep up the good work. And uh, we'll hope to have you back on the show soon. Absolutely. And, you know, after the wineries tonight, I look forward to us having the UB40 zoning district for new wineries. I like that. We're going to have to include that in the UDO. We might need a whole another episode to dive deep into that one. On scene. Deal. We will. Yeah, we need to start doing some live remotes from uh, from some of these places where we're rezoning. Yes. Because some of them are pretty fun. Well, thank you for joining us for episode three. Uh, we'll be back next week, and we hope you'll join us on R&D in the QC. R&D in the QC. Larkin, a pleasure. Over and out. You're listening to R&D in the QC with Tariq Bakari and Larkin Eggleston. 